Welcome to Access Utah. This is Sherry Quinn. Caleb Daniloff is a writer living in Cambridge, Massachusetts, with his wife and daughter. He is also a marathon runner, a sport he uses to conquer his demons, his way of leaving them in the past. Caleb is the author of Running Ransom Road, a meticulously detailed account of his 18-month crusade running marathons in the cities he says he sinned in, where he drank to oblivion, abused drugs, started fights, lost loves, and nearly lost his life. Today on the program, I talked to Caleb Daniloff about his battle with alcoholism and his road to recovery, one race at a time. I talked to Caleb Thursday morning, just a few days after the Boston Marathon bombings. As a Bostonian and an avid runner, Caleb was naturally there. He was at mile 23. You know, cheering people on there, but it was uh, you know, obviously a, a massive shock to the city and to the marathon. Obviously, it's still echoing today. Right. It must have been just quite a um, surreal experience, an emotional experience. And I'm sorry about that. Oh, well, thank you. President Obama is here today and, you know, giving an address. And, uh, you know, people are still a little on edge, but, you know, you can feel sort of a, a defiance uh, rising up out of the pain. So it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a tough time. I actually went for a run this morning uh, around the perimeter of the site, you know, and that was uh, pretty emotional. I mean, there it's, it's surreal still. I mean, there's uh, armored Humvees everywhere, cops, barricades, um, you know, lots of flowers and memorials and, uh, of course, tons and tons of press. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it you know, feels a little bit like a war zone down there. I imagine, and I appreciate that you've taken the time to talk to me today with the, all of that going on. And have you been doing interviews about that? I, I haven't been giving interviews about, you know, my take on the, on the marathon. I wrote a piece, you know, just about the role that the Boston Marathon has played in my life. I wrote about it in my book. Um, you know, it sort of it was part of my kind of recovery journey. It was the first marathon I ran. It was a, uh, you know, a pretty special race, no matter when you run it. You know, it's just so historic and uh, venerable and, uh, you know, has so much uh, history and so many charity runners that are running for, for great causes and running in, in memory of people who've, uh, you know, who've passed on because of various afflictions or diseases and there's a real kind of healing element I found to the race. You know, it has it had a very transformative impact on me and I think on lots of people that you don't really find at other marathons. And and why is that? If you could go to the first time when you ran the Boston Marathon and what that experience was was like for you. I ran as a charity runner, um, and so usually most of the charity runners are kind of clustered together in, in corrals, and um, you know, so the first five to ten miles, you're, you're sort of running together with these people, and like I said, a lot of them are wearing shirts or uh, have messages or portraits of uh, deceased loved ones, and, you know, you know that they're, you know, trying to overcome some damage in their life. You know, I was uh, was a uh, drunk for, for about 15 years and, and drug abuser, and you know, the marathon really sort of allows you to overcome yourself, uh, to sort of conquer yourself. Um, and uh, Boston was a, one of my sinning grounds, and so I, I felt like, uh, you know, and running had become such a healing agent for me that sort of setting it against, uh, you know, multiplying it by five times and setting it against the landscape of my past, you know, had sort of uh, an impact on me, uh, sort of a 
you know, it was symbolic on a lot of levels, but, you know, it was transformative. I just, uh, I felt softened and capable uh, by the end of the race. So, uh, you know, in that way, it was very special. And I soon, you know, I, I had this goal to, to break four hours, and I completely sort of threw that out the window once I got running. And, you know, the fans are incredible. I mean, it's uh, wall-to-wall people are out there cheering you on, you know, handing you food and drink. And, you know, it's a very, very communal experience you know and running is such a solitary activity and and so running running a marathon and particularly the boston marathon you know it's just uh it brings everyone together it's just sort of this uh massive beating heart that everyone's part of shaking like a ladder to sun makes me feel like a Find me never, never far gone. So get your leather, leather, leather on. Caleb runs 30 to 40 miles a week and enters one marathon a year. He was planning on running the Boston Marathon this year, but time got in the way, and he could only attend as a cheerful supporter. After witnessing the heartbreak on Monday from the sidewalk, he is gearing up to return to the streets next year with his running shoes to the pavement. The fundraising is uh, is quite a effort in, on on top of just the training. So I decided to forgo uh, this year, but uh, I think I will certainly be running it next year. And I wanted to go back to your teenage years, I guess. Right when your addiction started, you said it start in your book. You t- you write about it starting when you were fourteen years old in in Moscow. And would you mind going back to that? Ex- that time and when do you think that it all started? What was that first trigger or first experience? I mean, I thought a lot about, you know, why I went down the path I did. And, and that sort of was the premise of the book was to sort of revisit my past through these marathons. And, um, you know, it's really a sort of a constellation of factors, I think. Um, you know, I think there was some genetic predisposition. Um, as a kid, I was a prolific bedwetter. Uh, so I was uh, sort of walked around, you know, feeling a deep sense of shame and alienation. I couldn't go to sleepovers really. Um, I couldn't really have people sleep over at my my place. So there was, it, I was sort of set on the outside already, um, kind of alienated even at a, at a young age. And then my parents moved us to uh, Moscow to the former Soviet Union when I was 11. My dad took a job as a magazine, American magazine correspondent there, and. Um, you know, I sort of went native. Um, you know, they put me in, in Soviet school and Soviet pioneer camp. And as you can imagine, the Russian culture and Soviet culture is very vodka-centric. So I started drinking there. I, I wouldn't say that's where I became addicted. I think it certainly shaped the person who later did become addicted. So it was a sort of a tumultuous time, especially when I came back to the States, because I sort of suddenly didn't know what it meant to be an American um, you know, that those feelings of alienation were very much, you know, came back to the surface. And um, it was sort of in high school that I, I really started turning toward drugs and alcohol as a, sort of a way to, to escape, to fit in, to ease, you know, those feelings of discomfort and, and loneliness and that kind of thing. And also at the, the end of our stay in Moscow, my dad was arrested on bogus espionage charges and thrown in jail. So our, our ending to the time in Moscow was, was very much marred, and we were 
uh, deported. So it was uh, it was all very you know big upheaval. So there was a lot of sort of self soothing that I I turned to, and it was really sort of when I got toward the end of high school and into college when drinking and drugging was just uh, became my normal. Um, up until then, it was just I would just describe it as sort of heavy partying. Was it every day? Was there a day that you didn't drink or or use something? I mean, it got to the point where it was it was pretty much every day. I mean, I was either drunk or hungover, and whenever I was hungover, you know, my immediate remedy was to was to drink a little more. I mean, there were probably some days here and there where I, I wasn't wasn't drinking, but it was just uh, it really was the central you know rhythm in my life. How did it affect you health wise, and how were you able to really get up every day and go to school or go to work? And you know, I was usually in a state of of hangover. Um, you know, so I felt a bit shaky, a bit nervous. I mean, it had, you know, totally the opposite effect of what I intended it to have. I probably became more sort of insecure and, and nervous, and the only way to counter that was to drink more, and then, yeah, so it was just sort of this vicious cycle. But, um, you know, I also, uh, at the same time, uh, was a heavy smoker, and I'd get winded going upstairs. I didn't eat properly. I was super skinny, and my, I had 19 cavities my freshman year in college. You know, I wasn't a picture of health by any means, but I, you know, I didn't care. You know, it didn't, wasn't something that I really cared about at the time. How was your family reacting around you and your friends? And did you have many friends? Because I imagine you pushed a lot of people away. And you, you described several scenes in the book of interactions with friends and fights. And Yeah, you know, I probably did push a lot of friends away. My family, you know, they were aware, you know, that I was, you know, a heavy drinker. And they tried to, you know, my parents tried to intervene, um, you know, and it was more sort of an old school fashion. It was very confrontational. And, you know, to me, that felt like it was judgmental. Um, you know, they had, you know, made me go to see psychiatrists and things like that. And then there was definitely a, a rift and I I would pull away and try and be more secretive. And de- it definitely created a lot of distance with my parents. You know, with friends, I would uh, wake up the next morning and have no idea that, you know, we got into an argument or into a fight or something. And I had girlfriends. Inevitably, those relationships would all demise due to the alcohol issue. Um, so I, it wasn't it wasn't very fruitful in the relationship, relationship department. What was it that changed your mind to go down a different path? I didn't really have, I'd say, like a moment of epiphany. I think I was... Uh, you know, as you often hear uh, drunks say that, you know, they got sick and tired of being sick and tired. Uh, that was certainly a factor. Um, I was in a relationship with a woman who's now my, my wife, and she had a young daughter. And that relationship was going down the same path as all the other ones. And, uh, and this time, though, there was a child involved. So that sort of gave me extra pause. And I knew that there's no way that there'd be any sort of real future in, with that relationship. So I got to the point where I knew that um, if I didn't change, you know, change the direction of my life, um, it was just going to go downhill very fast and would, wasn't going to end well. And I just knew I had to, had to change. And so I, I did. How old were you when you first started running? And what was that first run like? How challenging was it? It was probably three years into sobriety when I started running. I'd started off by swimming. Um, I really loved swimming. You know, I loved sort of being underwater and all the senses are muted and uh, there was something sort of peaceful, almost primordial about it. And But I developed these ear infections 
that kept getting in the way. I should backtrack and, and say that sort of the reason that I went down the fitness path in the first place was, was really kind of almost out of vanity uh, because I'd, after I quit drinking, I quit smoking, I put on like 30 pounds and, uh, you know, I saw a picture of myself uh, like on the beach and it was just, I was horrified at like what, what I'd become and even though I'd quit drinking, sort of the, how I had ended up and so I wanted to do something about it. And so, I, you know, I found the pool and that was working for a while. And uh, after the ear infections, I just tried the rowing machine, and then I hopped on a, on a treadmill and uh, was just sort of fast walking, and I tried running for a couple minutes. And, you know, and there was something about it that I liked that sort of clicked with me. It was sort of that almost the symbolic feeling of moving forward physically and, you know, and then eventually sort of psychologically. So he stayed on the treadmill, not thinking of himself as a real runner. I was just sort of faking it on the treadmill. You know, and then one day I, you know, I just decided to try running outside and um, it was like a whole, whole new world opened up. He eventually found a dirt road in Middlebury, Vermont, where he had been living. He writes about the spiritual experience in the book, where he describes the sunsets he witnessed there as so gorgeous they left bruises. I started realizing that I could sort of get to know myself again through running uh, because the demand on the body is, is such that you know, there's really no room for false thoughts. And uh, so it was, it was very therapeutic. I was able to sort of start working through my past and, and trying to reconcile my past and my present. And I also started really thinking about the people that I'd, that I'd been real crummy to and, and how I might reach out to them and what I might say to them. And you know, a lot of my apologies were, were drafted in my head during these runs. It soon became, you know, sort of a, a confessional and a therapist couch and a, and a pharmacy counter at the same time. Uh, it was just, uh, I just felt that I'd found something that opened up something inside me where I could sort of get down to the, to the root of things. And how did you reach out to some of those people? And did you confront them in person or, or through letters? Some people I, I, I talked to in person. Most I wrote uh, letters to. Uh, some people responded and some people didn't. You know, I I had to accept that, you know, it wasn't really about me and I had to accept whatever reaction or non-reaction they had. I mean, it was just important that I made the effort. And uh, I feel that, that running really softened something in me and, uh, you know, it cultivated a, a feeling of humility in me. Some people wrote back and, and were perfectly uh, uh, pleasant and, you know, happy that, that I'd made the change and they weren't uh, seething with anger. You know, I mean, I still wonder about some people and, you know, I think some people might not ever get back to me, but I'm always, always open to it. Do you ever feel tempted to, to drink again? Not really. Every once in a while, you know, I'll think, well, you know, being real sweet to have a beer after mowing the lawn for a couple hours, sitting on a porch with a friend or something like that. You know, it's very appealing, but I don't feel any pull toward that. It's been 14 years and, you know, not drinking has just become, has become as normal as, uh, you know, drinking used to be. I mean, I feel pretty solid. What cities were the most impactful and meaningful to you running through and which ones maybe were the, were the most treacherous in your drinking days? Well, Boston and New York were places where um, I also did a lot of coke. Um, and for me, cocaine was almost a drinking tool. You know, it just allowed me to, 
to stay up for days on end drinking. And uh, I really got into that. And, you know, so Boston and, and New York had that, that sort of element. Moscow was treacherous physically. Um, and it was also actually, that was uh, the one place where I went back where you asked earlier about being tempted. Where it was, I felt a challenge to, to my sobriety because my, my Russian friends were all, you know, a couple of them were had become hardcore alcoholics. And, and a Russian alcoholic uh, is can be pretty extreme. And uh, so I was sort of faced with that when um, I went to Moscow to run the marathon. And, you know, at one point I even thought, you know, this, it would be so much easier and things would be so much calmer and we would all connect so much better, you know, if I just, if I just did one shot and just eased the, uh, the weirdness. But, you know, ultimately I did not. But so that was a little treacherous sobriety wise. Uh, and the marathon itself physically was quite challenging. It was uh, like four out and backs. So it was, uh, you know, you saw the same thing over and over. So it was really sort of mind numbing. And there were all kinds of absurd mishaps, like they ran out of water at a couple stations. They were rationing water at another station. Our bib numbers, almost all of the bib numbers disintegrated because they were made on this really cheap paper. And so it was uh, definitely one of the more interesting marathons that I ran. wet-drenched eyes were dreaded, yet welcomed discomforts for Caleb. Running through the physical pain translated into overcoming addiction and ultimately self-forgiveness. He hopes the book will inspire others who struggle with addiction to embrace change in their own lives as well. I think life is about evolving, and it's about to continue to become and not to sort of stay stuck. And even though if you feel like you're, you are stuck, I think people should know that there's always a way forward. You can always put one foot forward. It may take a while. It may be very incremental. Um, it was so in my case. But continue to evolve and have that mindset. You can always overcome yourself. And what is next for you now? Where can we read your articles? And are you working on a new book I'm toying with uh, the idea of writing more in depth about my Moscow experience, but nothing formal at this point. If you visit my website, which is calebdaniloff.com, you can see all you know all my other writing. Um, there's also more on, on the book there as well. And how cathartic is writing for you? I mean, I imagine that's similar to to running. It is. I mean, writing is certainly cathartic. I always think of the Joan Didion line that I don't know what I think until I write it down. And so a lot of writing of the book, it was a learning experience. A lot of things that I came to understand came to me as I was writing the book, not just while I was running these marathons, but it was really processing it and thinking about it. Um, So, uh, you know, writing is a very therapeutic and uh, illuminating process. You know, a lot of things I would never have thought of if I hadn't been engaged in the writing process. And of course, writing a book is, uh, you know, is very, uh, can be very taxing. And so it is very similar to uh, the endurance that you need for a marathon. You know, it's a more, more like an ultra marathon writing a book. You think you're young, you're middle class. They say it doesn't matter. In his book, Running Ransom Road, 
Caleb Daniloff openly shares his old life of self-destruction and how he ran his way out into redemption. He is now an accomplished runner and writer with a proud family. Everything is good and the way it should be. Caleb urges listeners to support victims of the Boston Marathon through the One Fund Foundation. Over $10 million has already been raised by the charity. More information is available online at onefundboston.org. Show uh, moral and spiritual support for, for a city going through hard times right now. Thank you for listening. Sherry Quinn, Access Utah. Sometimes you stay in bed. Sometimes you go la di da di da di da until your eyes roll back. Support for Utah Public Radio is provided by Messina Wildlife Management, manufacturer of organic animal repellents under the Animal Stopper name. Retailer location and other information is at stopanimaldamage.com. Waste not. Install a rain sensor on your irrigation controller so your system won't run when it's raining. Also, install water-wise fixtures and appliances. Waste Not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org slash publicworks. And support for Science Questions is provided by Apogee Instruments of Cache Valley, creating innovative sensors for measuring climate change, sustainable food production, and renewable energy. More information is at apogeeinstruments.com. We have not reached the technological lifestyle of the famous 1960s cartoon family, the Jetsons, yet. According to mechanical engineers Walter Holmans and Sarah Bamberg, the robots are coming. And engineers are getting us closer to a society that could make even the Jetsons look old school. It's absolutely magic. I think it's part science fiction meets 21st century. For those of us who grew up with the Jetsons, we sort of expected our, our robotic uh, nanny and ma- maid by now and the cars driving themselves. But some of those haven't exactly come true. There's just so many inexpensive ways to get into robotics that I think it's more accessible now than it ever used to be. Welcome to Science Questions. I am Sherry Quinn. I am Susie Montgomery. Before we hear more from Walter and Stacy about their roles in the robotic revolution... We are heading back to school, where the nation's current focus on promoting STEM education is gaining momentum with youth robotics competitions. Producers Elaine Taylor and Clint Holgate went to one such competition at Utah State University, and they have this report. Three, two, one, go! Over the next few months, Clint and I will be producing a series of segments looking at the lesser-known sport of high school robotics... 
This week, as an introduction, we'll take you to a regional VEX competition where Intermountain High School teams pit their robots against each other in the arena. Is it stressful for you to be here watching them? <laughs> I think it's harder for me than it is my son. Local teams met at Utah State University to show their robotic skills. During each round of the competition, two teams are assigned to work together, facing off against another alliance. The goal of the game is to collect colored beanbags and place them on platforms. The first 15 seconds is completely autonomous. The robots are pre-programmed and must complete the task without the help of the students. For the remainder of the round, a student driver takes the control. As the round comes to an end, the refs count the number of beanbags in the trough to determine the winner. How, how did your match go? Um, we just won. We think. We were pretty close, but we won. How do you feel about it? Uh, it's fun. Good about it. It's, it's an entertaining thing to do. But the satisfaction of winning isn't the only thing the students get out of the program. Do you want to go into something that has to do with engineering or robotics in the future? I do. I actually want to be a mechanical engineer focusing on automation. So this is perfect for you then? Oh, I love it. It's like I look forward to it every day. I'm like, oh, robots. Do you guys hope to go into engineering or something with robotics when you finish high school? Yeah, everyone's nodding their heads. Yeah. <laughs> I'm probably going into computer science because I'm programming, but yeah. talk to one of the competition organizers. So could you introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Gary Stewartson. Stewartson is an associate professor of applied sciences, technology, and education. He helped bring robotics competitions to the region. It's not only these STEM, science, math, engineering, technology type skills that they're, they're developing, but they're also developing... Uh, what we would consider soft skills uh, it, that engineers need, the ability to work in a cooperatively in a team, uh, the ability to communicate your ideas. Uh, and they also develop a, a level of confidence and, and self-efficacy because students have to speak to the other students and, and, and express their ideas and things like that. Stewartson hopes that these and other similar competitions get students excited about careers in the sciences. More so, he hopes that having students work in teams and alliances will help them develop the skills to communicate their research designs and scientific thoughts, something that is becoming increasingly valuable for future scientists. How, what do you think he gets out of this, like, in a school aspect or, like, making friends? What's been positive about this experience? Oh, it's been a good experience for him. He's really made more friends and self-esteem's gone up it's really been a good thing this is a neat program and it seems that students definitely have confidence in their skills why is your robot better than everyone else's uh well 
It's uh, faster. It's lighter. It can do say. everything, basically. If you yeah. notice, if you look at the field, there's troughs, high goals, and floor tiles that you can score on. We do all of that. We can score and de-score in every way, everywhere. We can go under the troughs onto their side. We can just do everything, which makes us the best. Where do you hope this program goes in the next few years? Uh, I hope it continues to grow. I think it's a, you know, sometimes you have carrots to get kids motivated, and this is a great carrot. But more important than just being a carrot, there's a lot of educational value behind it, both, as I said, the hard skills and the soft skills. We'll be checking out more high school robotics competitions in the next few weeks, so make sure to tune in. students Elaine and Clint talked to are on their way to the VEX Robotics World Championship in Anaheim, California that starts April 17th. A total of seven teams from Utah will be among roughly 700 middle, high school, and college teams from over 20 countries. Events like this help students uncover what engineering is about, and some just might go on to design the next automobile, a new spacecraft, a robotic eye or arm. The possibilities seem endless. Robotics essentially takes math and physics and turns it into something practical. Next, engineer Stacy Bamberg describes the necessary components that comprise robots. A very simple robot could have, you know, a single sensor that provides the perception, so something that can interact with the world and get some information about the world. And then the cognition can be a, uh, all the way up to a full-scale computer or a tiny little microcontroller. And action means that that microcontroller is taking in the the sensors that it's reading, and then it's it's has some means of interacting back with the world. You know, your standard robot that we like to imagine walking around, it's got sensors so it can see you, and it's got a, a computer brain, and then it can, it can interact with you, and it can walk around in the world. Those are the three big components, and people, uh, for instance, as they go into grad school, they might specialize uh, very specifically in one of those. So mechanical engineers tend to be drawn towards the action, thinking about how we can make cool new actuators, muscles out of different kinds of materials, different kinds of motors, and that sort of thing. Computer science students uh, might be really drawn to the cognition, thinking about how we process all that, and uh, definitely overlap in both of those, and lots of overlap between students in terms of uh, the perception and how, how we get information to the robot. Stacy Bamberg has developed an insole embedded with sensors to help amputees and others with walking disabilities. The insole was eight years in the making and uses a silicone gel to support sensors that read the walking information of the patient. The sensors are able to track pressure, position, and angle of the foot. Basically, I call this the stomp bot. Converse, <laughs> or Converse shoes, yeah. Um, so we've got some Converse high tops. Yeah, we've in the got middle. we've got high tops. Our lab at the U, we've got quite a collection of the Converse shoes because partly they just bring a smile to people's face. So when we go we go over to the rehab lab and we look for patients and we say, hey, you want to you know give us a sample of your walking and you get to wear our Converse shoes. People just think that's cute and it's a great conversation starter. <laughs> that's really cool. So it's a little manipulative. No, a little bit. <laughs> I never thought of it like that. <laughs> but yes. So so tell me how this works. I mean, I, I, I read a little bit about it, and it's an insole that helps yeah. amputees walk better. But can you explain it? Yeah, definitely. So our uh, insole, we, we pour out a silicone, and we embed inside it uh, four sensors and um, a microcontroller and a sensor board that has an accelerometer 
and a gyroscope so that we can measure how the foot is moving and how the forces under the, the foot are playing out in real time. And then we send that data in real time to a smartphone, and the smartphone actually, it's amazing, smartphones can do what desktop computers could do 10 years ago. So the smartphone does all the analysis of the data, and then as the person is walking, gives them feedback immediately. So you can see a visual feedback that sort of shows you which side you're leaning to, or um, we're really excited about our auditory feedback, which basically tries to guide both feet towards having the same amount of time and the same amount of force on the ground. Patients are very motivated to get rid of their limp. They just want to blend in and look like everybody else and not stand out and have people ask them why they're walking funny. And then long term, if, if you've had an amputation and you develop a limp and you never get rid of the limp, you're more likely to have osteoarthritis in your intact leg because you're putting too much force on it. You can even have osteoporosis in your leg that's been amputated because you're not putting enough force on it to keep the bone healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are long term effects that we'd like to help people reverse as, long, as well as helping them meet their goal of, of blending in and, and walking without a limp. So the robots are coming home with us, and also to your grandmother's house. We are living longer, and by 2030, there will be about 72.1 million older persons. You know, both demographically, if we look at the fact that in the U.S. our population is aging, um, and so we've got a number, we've got the baby boomer generation who are, you know, they want to be independent, they want to live on their own. But there's so many of them, (laughs) we're going to have to figure out how to get them tools that they can use to stay in their homes independently for longer, you know, and whether that's something they swallow, something they interact with, you know, the robot who helps them at home. To find out about another robotics product with Utah Roots making waves in the industry, we decided to check in with a friend across the country. I'm actually talking from my iPhone inside a car. So I figured the acoustics would be best. Walter Holman's graduated from Utah State University with a master's degree in mechanical engineering. Now he lives in Washington, D.C., near his aerospace and robotic boat factories. For the aerospace engineering, we make the devices that separate satellites from rockets. So when the final stage of a rocket has burned out, our mechanism, which is a circular ring, separates into two smaller rings. One of the rings is attached to the spacecraft, and the other ring stays with the rocket. And then our work is done, and the mission for the spacecraft has begun. For robotics, my other company manufactures um, autonomously sailing catamarans, about as big as a small car, and built in large fleets. They're designed to study the oceans, to measure pollution, to measure how much carbon the water might be absorbing from human activities to measure weather and the, how many fish there might be or, or to, uh, to patrol areas that are projected marine um, sanctuaries or to provide security for harbors and so on. There are robots that, because they sail themselves, can go anywhere on the ocean without human intervention. And because they don't have a person in the loop, cost to operate is is much, much lower, so we can build massive fleets of these things, which are essential to study because the oceans occupy twice as much surface area as land does. To give you an idea, there's probably more sensors built into a couple of buildings in Manhattan than there are sensors built into um, all of the world's oceans to study, say, global warming. And because we don't have 
uh, a high density of sensors on the ocean to observe, say, temperatures or current flows. We have uh, an insufficient amount of information to to react efficiently to the changes in the, the coming changes in the environment. Walter envisions a fleet of robot boats made almost entirely from 3D printing components. In fact, his 3D vision was featured in the March 9, 2013 issue of Science News. 3D printing builds objects by piling up layers of material. You design your object or product on a computer screen with drafting software, and then it goes through a program that slices it up and translates it into a stack of two-dimensional layers. The printer then constructs the three-dimensional object. We use it every day. It's a fundamental, essential part. It's the keystone technology. What needs to be understood, if, if we really want to get the magic performance that, that these 3D printing is endowed with, the, the engineers have to change the way they think, and this is, this is the most important thing. We have to stop thinking that it's a, we design a bunch of parts that are printed and then bolted together. No, we have to behave like nature. Instead of designing something where all the parts are bolted together, instead, design the plastic parts the way nature makes, say, our bones. For example, Walter designed the rudder of his boat using 3D printing technology in a way that mimics how joints and bones move around in the human arm or a dolphin's fin. Walter says 3D printing technology has allowed him and his team to envision fleets of robot boats across the ocean. 3D printing brings the cost down. The boats cost roughly $200,000 each. The ocean covers 70% of the Earth's surface. It drives the weather, regulates the temperature, and ultimately sustains all life. Yet only 5% of the ocean has been explored. Walter believes robots can change that, but it won't be easy. I have always been enamored by the vastness of the oceans and um, how much like space they are. It's so very hazardous and so very difficult to get to the bottom of the ocean. Frankly, it's hazardous just to get into the middle of the surface of the ocean. The, the fact that it's, that it's, even in my lifetime, even in, these, even in these very modern times, it still remains, for the most part, a complete mystery of how it works. It's like space exploration without the fantastic burden of having to go light years away. I mean, we understand far more about the surface of Venus than we understand about the surface of the ocean, the, the, the surface that's below the water, because we can see through the clouds of Venus with radar. But water is utterly impenetrable to radar or any other radio. That's why nuclear submarines can hide underwater. You can't detect them because you cannot use radio, any radio frequency or any light or any x-rays or any cosmic rays to see into the oceans. They're just a complete mystery unless you actually go there with either a sensor um, or an actual person in, a, in, say, a submarine to study them. And that's because of the pressures. Every 33 feet of seawater, that's one atmosphere of pressure. So we have 50 miles of atmosphere to give us one atmosphere of pressure Water is so much more dense, it only takes 33 feet. The deepest part of the oceans is deeper than the Mount Everest is tall, and Mount Everest is about 30,000 feet. So, you know, you can do the math. That's about a 1,000 atmospheres or so.
or more at the bottom of the ocean. It will crush, it will crush anything that's imperfect. If you took a crystal ball, a perfect, perfect crystal ball that was, say, the size of a basketball, and uh, it was filled with air at one atmosphere, and you, it was just perfectly sealed and heavier than water, and, and you let it sink to the bottom of the ocean, it would do fine. It wouldn't crack at all. It would be in pure compression. If you, like, took a diamond and inscribed your name on it and did the same thing, it would fracture right there and just completely, utterly implode like an explosion. And so when they try to go to the bottom of the ocean, they use things like that, these perfect pieces of glass as windows, and then they use titanium inches thick, also formed into either cylinders or spheres, and even then, it's very, very risky. So it's, it's uh, in a sense, much, much more difficult to be uh, an aquanaut than it is to be an astronaut. We have a lot of rockets, and we travel to space more often than we go to the bottom of the ocean. Not a lot of people are terribly interested in being at the bottom of the oceans other than scientists and, and things like geologists or, or, or marine biologists. You know, the, in space, of course, you get a bird's-eye view of your adversary or you get a very good place from which to broadcast radio or television. But at the bottom of the ocean, it doesn't matter what you do except setting off a nuclear weapon. Nobody can possibly detect uh, your existence. So space has always enjoyed a, a great, obvious, high-ground use. The bottoms of the ocean don't really do a lot for a lot of people other than biologists and geologists. Walter hopes to eventually launch 10,000 robot boats at once, equipped with three detectors. One that measures carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, one that measures carbon dioxide in the water, and one that measures the wind velocity at the surface. And, and if you know those three numbers, then you can calculate what rate carbon dioxide is leaving or entering the water or the atmosphere. And you'll need like 10,000 boats doing that for years so that you can gather enough data to inform climate scientists of information that they can calibrate their models with. And once they have that, then they can give policymakers very specific answers about when big trouble is going to happen. So if, if these models are very accurate, they can tell politicians that um, you can expect three-degree centigrade ride in, rise in, say, three decades, and because of that, Greenland is going to drain of ice, and because of that, the cod fisheries are going to collapse, and because of that, um, storms off of, say, Iceland are going to get severe, or, or, or Europe might go into uh, a temporary cold snap where uh, wheat harvest and say, Ukraine might go down by 20%. Like, that's how important that stuff is. And it's all, it's dependent on a lot of things, like the will of politicians and so on, but it's fundamentally dependent on what climate scientists and oceanographers can convince uh, politicians of. So politicians know it's 20 years away. It's, it's That's a near and present danger for them. And they all understand what happens when Russia 
or Ukraine might have, or, or India might have a 20% reduction in, in available wheat. Like, and that's what, we change the climate, that's, that, that is the real problem. We all know the climate's changing. We don't feel a need to react because we think it's a, it's a century away, but that's a speculative prediction. It's based on an ignorance of how much CO2 is, is, is going into the water or coming out of the water, among other variables. And so we build a fleet of these boats. We can do them extremely cost-effectively, and they'll almost immediately begin to help us um, put certainty to um, our weather models, our long-term weather models. That's the first thing I would do. The second thing I would do is I would park a fleet of them off of uh, the, the estuary coming out of the pebble mine that's planned in, in, in Alaska where, where the, a, a mining company plans to extract a very substantial amount of, of heavy metals from the very rich reserves there. If they spill their tailings into those rivers, it will easily <coughs> radically change the, the harvest of the fish in there because if you change the pH, the acidity or of the rivers, for example, or if you change the, the taste of the rivers, the fish will never go, no longer go up there to spawn, and because they don't do that, the fishing industry in Alaska might suffer a very severe uh, decline. So by sending out a fleet of boats now, we can go there and measure the baseline, um, the background pollution of the area, which should be very pristine because there's very little mining activity right now, except for some very small-scale gold and other mineral prospectors. But when you start throwing a $20 billion mine in there and they start spilling, then we're going to want to be able to tell the, the regulators um, these guys are exceeding the, the allowable limits of pollution in this region. Go off and do your duty and get them to behave in an absolutely responsible manner. Here's the data. There can be no question environment has to be protected. I'm not a rabid environmentalist, but I do recognize that these things can be a very, very useful tools for us to say, look, uh, the reason the, this body of water, say the Chesapeake Bay, looks the way it does is because there's pollution. And, and where is that pollution coming from? It's coming from these rivers. And where is it coming from? In these rivers, it's coming from such and such farms. And so when we can localize all of those sources of pollution, once we can do that, then we can regulate them and we can get them to change their behavior, not to shut them down or anything. I don't want to do that, but to get them or their whole industry to behave in a way that brings back these water bodies. You know, the Chesapeake Bay is, is kind of a classic example. You used to be able to walk out into the Chesapeake and at chest height see your toes. That condition hasn't existed for a 100 years because of um, farms upstream, chicken farms, and, and, and large cities dumping untreated uh, sewage, feeding the algae, which creates the cloudiness and smothers the oysters that filter the water. So if we can measure all of that, whether it's in the Bering Sea or in the Chesapeake or in the, uh, in the East China Sea, um, what it helps us do is say, look, 
this is exactly how polluted it is. Don't try to hide behind uh, ignorance or incomplete information. You, you have to act. The other big area of use, Walter says, is monitoring all of the oil platforms. And the oil companies are actually with us on this. Most of the oil that goes into gas tanks nowadays comes out of the oceans, not the land. Because there's an enormous amount of growth in, in offshore oil. One of the biggest areas is off of Brazil. They've discovered enough oil. They've discovered more oil there than there is in Saudi Arabia, and they're going to start pumping it. But it's, but it's all deep water, so it's high risk, high payoff. If, if they lose any of these production platforms, it'll be just like the Macondo blowout. So Brazil's approach, to my understanding, is they're going to have a zero-tolerance policy. If there's even a small leak, shut them down. And that way everybody else will know you got a small leak, you're going to lose a day's worth of revenue from pumping oil. And if you're pumping at a production rate of Saudi Arabia, you can imagine 500 or 1,000 giant uh, refineries sitting in four miles of water, 200 miles off the coast in a high current in less than perfect weather. If we can deploy out a couple of thousand of these robot boats with hydrocarbon detectors, and they're inexpensive tools, then we can instantly give the Brazilian authorities an exact real-time picture of where the hydrocarbons are, are coming from, and they can compare that to allowable limits. Like, there, there's always hydrocarbons. The oceans are always spewing their own natural amounts of, of oil. But if there's something that's above the natural limits of, of hydrocarbons, then, then Brazil enforcement agencies can, can go to the, the production platform and say, you have a leak, um, fix it immediately, and shut down your facilities, and here's a fine, and, and that's it. And, and I think that's the approach Brazil is taking. And I, I strongly suspect that anybody else that has large fields is going to want to do the same thing. So we want to be there as part of that solution. That was engineer Walter Holmans. We wish him, his team, and the robots the best of luck on their project. And we will continue to track their progress. Science Questions is produced by Sherry Quinn, Susie Montgomery, and Elaine Taylor. Thank you for listening.